0: Hi, me again. So I just wanted to give a huge shout out and thanks to our different ministry teams that are serving today, Adventure Kids, Student Ministries, Hospitality, uh, the host team, the production team, the worship and arts team, uh, the facilities team, which set all this up because not, not just because they're awesome, which they are, trust me, but also because uh, have, they've have been flexing a lot and like shuffling about as we have had uh, a lot of folks on our team uh, calling out sick um, and many of y'all are joining us online and we're praying for y'all uh, to get better. But what we, we know that uh, a lot of folks had kind of said, hey, I'm willing to do this thing. And then we're like, can you do these other 18 things too? And so huge thanks. And, and this is the deal, right? These different ministry teams, I'm so thankful because you've handled it with such grace and courtesy, uh, deferring to one another, being willing to step in even into some scary spaces. And so huge thanks to the different teams. Uh, that serve here at Desert Springs. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm up here uh, so frequently, is kind of filling in too um, uh, for some of the different folks as well. Uh, and so, huge thanks to them. Um, Today we are continuing on in our study called Disciple. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 2 and 3 today. The study, the objective of the study is to discern for each of us what it means to live as a a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus. And the reason we use the language of disciple is because it really does have a unique nuance. It's, It's more than a student to a teacher, and it's different than just a leader to a follower because you can be a student and a follower and have no relationship, no real relationship with the one that you're learning from or the one that you're following. However, a disciple, the idea of discipleship, has within it this nuanced idea of having not only being a student of the teacher and being a follower to the leader, but also of being uh, in relationship with the the one that you're following, to be near them, to be uh, in relationship with them. And so that's why we're calling that, because Jesus calls us to be his disciples, not just students, not just followers, but to be his disciples. And so we're trying to learn what that looks like for us. If you have a Bible uh, today, I'd encourage you to open to chapter 2 of the Gospel of Mark. For those of you who are joining us online, if you have a print Bible, I'd encourage you to get it out. If you have a, uh, if you don't have one or you use a digital Bible, uh, if you go to Bible.com, you'll be able to pull up uh, and the Gospel of Mark's in uh, the New Testament, and you should have a drop-down list to find that. We'll use the Christian Standard version of the Bible today. Also, if you're joining us in person, I believe we've printed out, did we print out the text uh, this week and you guys got that? Okay, awesome. So the reason that we're printing the text out for y'all is so that you can like, write all over it and make notes. As you notice things, you can like scribble some notes, underline some things. Uh, Because sometimes if you have like a a print Bible that you like, you're like I noticed something, but I don't know if it's worth mentioning yet with pen to paper because if I do too much then it's all scribbly gook and I don't know about what to do about that. So we've got it printed out for you so you can keep those. Uh, During this study, we're going to go through the entirety of the Gospel of Mark. We're not going to necessarily go in sequential order, especially when we get up to the weeks leading up to Easter. We're going to zoom in on Uh, what's often referred to as Holy Week. Uh, But we will, throughout this series, go through the whole Gospel of Mark. And so if you stay with us the whole time, you will be able to brag to all of your friends at the Bible Club that you're a part of that you went and did the whole Gospel of Mark. I seriously doubt any of you are in a Bible Club. If you are, come and talk to me afterwards. It's kind of like doing Bible trivia at a party. Everyone doesn't want to do that evidently. So um, that's totally fine. Welcome to church. So uh, here's what we're going to do. It's something, A practice that we've been doing throughout this study is before we begin to read the text together, we're going to connect ourselves to the ancient tradition of hearing the word first. And so the majority of the, the scripture that you have, if you have a print Bible or a digital Bible, the majority of that material uh, was was artistically designed, uh, not primarily to be read, but primarily to be read aloud and heard. The majority of Christians throughout church history did not read the Bible, whether it was because they could could not get a copy because it was so expensive, or they couldn't read, uh, especially before the printing press uh, uh, came around, most uh, uh, Jesus followers throughout church history heard the Bible. So we're just going to tether ourselves to that ancient tradition. Don't worry, we're going to read it here in just a minute together. Uh, But here's my encouragement to you. I think there's a gift in this. uh, So don't read along when I read. I'm going to read through the whole text. Uh, And just maybe even close your eyes if you want to, or just allow your mind's eye to start seeing the scenes as we read the text together. Allow it to kind of enliven your imagination. This is what would have happened to the original hearers, right? They would have heard it and used the the kind of the the TV in their mind, so to speak, to imagine these things happening. And then here's the other thing too. Uh, Just be attentive to maybe what the Spirit of God is doing. Maybe something uh, is going on inside you, maybe a thought comes to mind, maybe a word, maybe a song, maybe a prayer, whatever it is. I'm not going to ask you what it is, we're not going to get weird like that, but I'm just going to encourage you to just be attentive. And maybe it's nothing, and maybe you're just going to think about lunch. That's okay too. We're going to see in the text a lot of eating, and so it would be normal for you to think about lunch. That's totally fine too. Just be attentive to what the Spirit's doing, and uh, we'll read it, and uh, we'll hear it, and then uh, we'll study it together. So this is uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 13, until chapter 3, uh, verse, I think, 6. We'll see. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then, passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up. And he followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Now, on the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, He was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. This is the word of the Lord. So I just want to notice a few things with you together as we go through the text, Hopefully it will help us understand uh, how we can live as disciples of Jesus even in this day. So in the text, you noticed, I think, there was a lot of food, wasn't there? There was a lot of eating. And so there's three uh, moments where uh, Jesus is criticized or confronted about his eating behavior. And each of these scenes gets progressively more intense with the Pharisees, who are kind of like the religious elite, kind of getting more intense, more intense, more intense in their aggression against Jesus. So let's see if we can notice some things. Uh, so, we just pick it up right back in uh, chapter 2, verse 13. So, Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So, if you remember from the last couple weeks, that, the, that, that one of the things that Mark sets in the scene is that the, the kingdom of darkness has overcome the world, and Jesus comes into the world as the, uh, the representative of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, he says, is the good news. He came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And he comes into the world, which is full of oppression from the kingdom of darkness, and his light starts to drive out that darkness, driving out uh, demons and uh, uh, sickness and death. If you guys were with us the last couple of times, you'll see that. And that type of activity, Jesus bringing his, the goodness of his kingdom into a world that has been so oppressed by darkness that other people started seeing it and he went from just a handful of people following him to massive crowds seeing him, crying out, we want what you've got. Pick it up right now. Do you notice... Who was with him? The the whole crowd, big mass of people. Y'all with me so far? Okay, let's keep going. Was coming to him and he was teaching him. Notice this throughout the Gospel of Mark, this is crazy. Mark consistently and frequently says that Jesus was teaching, but Mark rarely, if ever, tells us what his lessons were. You don't get the content of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of Mark. Is that weird? Like, if it's so important what he's teaching, isn't it weird that we don't see what it is? I think that what Mark is trying to do here is saying, if you want to know what what he's teaching about, look at how he's living. He is teaching. Um, Have you guys ever, um, do you know, like, uh, who has kids? I'm just going to ask you a hypothetical question. Um, If your children think that the words coming out of your mouth do not line up with the actions and lifestyle that you're living, do you think that they will tell you? They will find a profound amount of opportunities to tell you that what you're telling them to do, you don't do. Because our actions oftentimes teach louder in our words. Perhaps what Jesus is, perhaps what Mark is saying here is, you are learning what Jesus is teaching. Watch him. You guys with me so far? Okay, here we go. It's gonna get, like today is gonna be crazy. I'm a little hoarse right now because I out-preached myself in first hour, and so Uh, Once the adrenaline kicks in, I'm probably gonna do a flip. We'll see. I love this. is one of my favorite texts. Okay, watch this. Then passing by, he saw Levi. TV timeout. One of the things that we say here at Desert Springs. One of my favorite things to say here at Desert Springs is that we are a bunch of misfits. We're a bunch of misfits. Bound together, not by our common affinities, but simply and by nothing more, bound together by the love and grace of God made known to us through Jesus Christ. The reason that I say misfits is because at our face and in our pre-Jesus state, we do not fit together. We come from all sorts of different economic and ethnic backgrounds. We come from different political persuasions. We come from all different types of places and spaces. And the thing that's uniting us, the thing that's drawing together is not our political affiliation. It's not our common economic status. It's not our common uh, ethnic heritage. The thing, the one thing that's binding us together is Jesus. And I just want to tell you that when misfits can unite, everyone goes, what is going on there? Oh yeah, we're going to get serious. Okay, this is going to be so fun for me. Okay, so Jesus, then passing by, saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. Have you guys ever gone to, you guys Arizonans? Anybody from a place where they have toll roads? I'm a Phoenician, okay? I go to these places, Florida, California, whatever, and I rent a car, and I'm just there to have a good time. And, and those Philistines, they're, they're very tricky, right? So, so I've got like my, I'm not supposed to, but I've got the little map, and I'm trying to drive, and everything's strange, and then all of a sudden, has this ever happened to you where you realize like, I'm in a lane for a toll booth? Does this ever happen to you? And it, are you happy? Okay, just take that little nugget, of absolute, pure, unadulterated rage that you feel in that moment, and magnify it out to this moment here. Where is Levi sitting in the toll booth? Now, here's here's maybe uh, what what we might want to notice. <clears throat> Uh, at the time, the region that they're in, uh, in the Galilee, it's under Roman occupation. So there's an occupying force, namely Rome. You know how they became the occupying force? They killed the old occupying force. Who killed the old occupying force? Who killed the old occupying force? The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. So here you have a bunch of Jewish people who've been under oppressive regimes for years. Do you think, that the average Jewish person who's living under Roman occupation is happy about the fact that they are being occupied? No, they're not happy, right? Because the Roman soldiers can come in and kind of do whatever they want. Now, if uh, so in the, in the dynamic setup that's here, uh, the, the Roman uh, government would select or, or, or have uh, tax collectors from the Jewish people. Levi is one of them. So Levi is a Jewish person, he's a Jewish man, who's collecting taxes from his, uh, from his own people group, right? And then giving the money to whom? Rome. So if you work in the Galilean region, do you like Levi or not? You do not like Levi. Now, here's the jam. If you were with us the last couple of weeks, you saw that Jesus, the first disciples that he says, follow me, he says to some fishermen. Now, if you're a fisher, uh, fisherman and you're there, and you're taking your, you know, your hall down the road past the tax booth, what do you think Levi is going to say to you? Pay up. And you know that that money, by the way, these tax collectors, they were, they were allowed by the Roman government to extort their own people. As much taxes as they could get out of them, they could give Rome what Rome was doing, then they could pocket the rest. These were collaborators with an occupying force. Nobody likes Levi, except for the other tax collectors and sinners. So, so oh man, this is so great. Imagine that you're like with, with Peter, right? And, and you're, a fisher, you're a fisher person. And Jesus comes to you and he says, follow me. And you're like, cool, Jesus, I want to do that. And then in chapter two of the letter in chapter one, early part of chapter two, in the Gospel of Mark, you see that he, where are we going, Jesus? And he says, we're going into the dark. We're going to where the demonic forces live. We're going to where sickness is. We're going to go do some healing, and we're going to raise people from the dead. We're going to go into the dark. And you're like, Jesus, that's scary, but okay. Who's going with us, Jesus? Guess what, fishermen? Tax collectors! Note. That in the gospel of Mark, there are only two professions mentioned of people to whom Jesus says the words, follow me, fishers and tax collectors. In fact, I think that Mark, the author, he noticed what Jesus says to Levi, the same thing he says to Simon and the other uh, fishermen. This is a mirror image. Jesus is constantly bringing misfits together. Okay, let's keep going. Oh, yeah, this is going to be crazy. Okay, son of Alphaeus, sit in the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And guess what Levi does? He got up and he followed him, right? Is that something to celebrate? Unless you hate Levi. Right? Can we be honest with each other? Unless you hate the type of people that Levi is. This is the type of person I would never associate myself with, and now they're in my church. No, thank you. I told you it was going to be fun. Okay, let's keep going. (laughs) While he was reclining at table, this is speaking about Jesus. How many of you guys are familiar with the holiday Thanksgiving? Okay, after the meal, if there's a lazy boy recliner in your home, some elected official in your family usually has claim or domain to that lazy boy, right? Like like the the nine-year-old's not getting it, right? Is this this common occurrence? Okay. And generally after the after the meal, somebody will take the position of reclining. Is that a position that speaks to I'm afraid of what's going on around me, I'm nervous? Or is that a a posture of I am at peace, I'm, I'm with my people, and I can recline among them? Jesus is here reclining. So this is more than just sitting, this is a feast, and he is reclining. Which means he's totally comfy where he is and who he's with. You guys got it? What's he doing? Is he sitting or he's reclining? Okay. Now, one of the things that we need to know about the uh, ancient tables, so at this time especially, to have someone at your table was a communicatory uh, means of saying to everyone, including the people at the table, these are my kind of people. If you had table fellowship with people, you were communicating, these are my kind of people. And what we, we actually have record of manuals on how to do feasts and and table fellowship within the Roman Empire. To fellowship with people lower than your estate generally brought you lower. So you were constantly trying to be at the table of those who are wealthier than you, more uh, at the table of those who are more powerful than you, Right. Because it was a a social ladder, right? So you were constantly trying to get yourself. And by the way, when you sat at the table, you did not want to be last. You wanted to be closest to the head of the table because that was a symbol of power. So you wanted to be not last, but first, right? That was how you got power. Okay, notice what Jesus does. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners which by the way, does not only carry the weight of, uh, of moral decay. So if, if a Pharisee were to use the word sinner, it would have been a whole package of people, almost like a profession, where it would have been like murderers and adulterers, but it also would have included uh, the poor and people who were not in a position uh, to, to maintain the traditions of their forefathers. And so this would be people um, uh, like, like shepherds are actually included in the sinner category. So this isn't just like moral decay. This is that, but it's also just people who cannot or will not keep the religious traditions that the Pharisees held. You guys with me so far? It's a broad category. And the reason that I want to point that out is notice it doesn't say many tax collectors and other types of sinners. Do you see it? There's two two categories here, the tax collector and the sinner. Uh, We're eating with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who were following him. I understand this text to mean that some of the tax collectors and sinners, like Levi, were also following Jesus. So you've got the devout uh, fishermen immediately connected to tax collectors and sinners. A bunch of misfits bound together by Jesus. Okay, let's keep going. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Notice the repetition. Uh, In the ancient world, to your knowledge, was ink expensive or cheap? It's very expensive. So if you were gonna keep repeating a phrase, there must be some sort of intent behind it, right? Notice tax collectors and sinners keeps getting repeated. Why does Mark do that? I think because every time we read it, we're supposed to wince. Tax collectors, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told him, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. Okay. Let's zoom in. Number one, notice that Jesus is not concerned about tacit approval. Jesus is not concerned about other people's opinions of who he's invited to his table. Jesus does not seem to be concerned about associating with those people. In fact, I would like to argue he invites it. Notice who's at the meal the fisherman. The Pharisees and scribes, and the tax collectors and sinners. And who's brought them all together? We are a bunch of misfits, bound together not by our common affinities, but by the love and grace of God made known to us through Jesus. Jesus has been doing this since the beginning of his ministry. The kingdom of God brings together different, 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 not differences, but different. As Scott McKnight says, that we are a fellowship of difference. We're different than each other. I'm going to, okay, let's go hard in the paint. Um, I am so convinced of this and committed to it, I might start preaching. I might get excited. A homogenous church, local church, has no gifts for you. A church of same has no growth for you or me. In fact, I think that a church that's same, where everyone's just very comfortable with each other, where where everyone's same, where we see things the same way, not only do I think there's not spiritual growth, I think there's a huge danger of misunderstanding our prejudices and preferences as what Christians believe and do. Because all the 18 that are just like me think the same way. And then we're aghast when we discover that another Christian thinks or behaves differently than we do. And then here's what I'm watching us do as a community right now. We just start saying, you're not a real Christian. You ain't like me. You ain't like us. <laughs> now, 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 oh boy. Okay. I'm going to say this as pastor as can. That approach rips apart the unity of the church and no one's impressed. No one looks in on a bunch of people who share the same political perspectives gathering together and saying, well, that's unique. It's not unique. That's what everybody's doing. No one looks in on a bunch of people who are in the same class, economic class, who are gathered together and bound together. No one looks in on that and says, well, that's unique. It's not unique. It's what everybody's doing. The unique thing about the kingdom of God is that it binds together a bunch of different misfits who have no business being together unless there was some sort of supernatural resurrection power that was doing it. A homogenous church has no gifts for you. Here's the other piece. Do you think that Jesus is smart? This is a trick question. You're like, he's a pastor. I think I'm supposed to say Yes. I'm not sure. Okay, I'll say yes. Do you think that Jesus is intentionally putting Simon Peter and Levi together at the table? And he's going to allow the conflict to happen? He's going to allow both of them to feel like... Why do you think the majority of the New Testament is full of commands like this? Stop sinning against one another. Stop hating on one another. Stop devouring one another. Rather, practice the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, understanding, goodness, self-control. Because naturally, we don't want to do those things when people are different than us. There's a gift waiting for us. Jesus will shape us. I'm convinced of this. Jesus has bound together the local church as a bunch of misfits in order to shape us more and more into his image. Here's Here's where you'll see it. You'll have an experience and an in love, good faith conversation with someone who has an opposite view of you, and you'll say something like this I've never thought about it that way. That's a gift. I've never seen that before. That's a gift. C.S. Lewis said that each one of us have a light that we're shining on God, each from our own different perspectives. And when we communicate that to each other and say, this is what I understand, this is where I'm at, this is why God's working in my life, we're communicating the goodness of God to people who can't see it the way we see it. And so each of us, when we do so in good faith and love and unity, we get a fuller picture of God. The homogenous church has no gifts for us. So, so let's do it. Huh? Let's, let's, let's follow Jesus' invitation. To be at the messy table of misfits and see if he doesn't have good gifts for us there. Let's keep going. Now John's disciples and the no, oh, now we're switching the scene. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Notice that we're talking about eating again. Okay? He's contrasting the feasting and the fasting. Here we go. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them. Can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away. He's talking about his death uh, and burial. The time will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sows. Okay, so now he's going to switch metaphors. He's talking about, hey, in my presence, we don't fast. We feast. We all eat. Okay? In fact, one of, the, one of my greatest laments and I'm just going to say this. I'm going to fly by it. You guys can talk to me later about it. One of my greatest laments is that all these seats are bolted in and facing forward. And when we take communion, we're not doing it as part of a feast facing one another. Like, that, that, just, that eats away at me. So if anyone has some extra concrete that we can level this thing out and put some chairs in here, I'm up for it. And here's why. Because the center of our Christian tradition is coming to Jesus' table and feasting. Communion was always a part of a greater meal where people would come together, a bunch of misfits, around a common table, and they would eat a full meal and celebrate what God had done in their lives. And there was no cellophane. Right? <laughs> Let the angels rejoice. <laughs> right. no one sew- okay, so now he's going change- to change up the metaphor. Notice this. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst out of the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. So no new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Jesus is not dogging on the old way. He's not saying that it was pointless or useless. He's not saying out with the old, in with the new. He's simply saying he's ushering in the kingdom of God in a fresh new expression, and it requires new models, new ministry. It's not the old sucks, and now the new is here. It's rather there's a new mission. There's There's a new fresh expression of the kingdom of God, and so... Fresh wine, fresh wineskins. And for us as a church, this is something that we're wrestling through right now. We were planted in 1977. Y'all, church, you all are 45 years old. And you look great, by the way, I wanted to tell you that. We're 45 years old. Let me ask you a question Do you think Phoenix, North Phoenix, has changed at all since 1977? Do you think Phoenix has changed at all in the last five years? It's changed in big ways. Uh, we are continually uh, are in the top ten over the last uh, few years in uh, biblically illiterate cities, meaning people don't read the Bible, in- including a lot of people who are part of church families. Uh, we also recognize that um, the politics of the area is changing. We recognize that the economics of the area is changing. We also recognize that there's a bunch of people coming that did, weren't not raised in Phoenix. So I was I'm born and raised in Phoenix. So I'm a native. And this city has doubled in my lifetime, some by people who are born here, but a lot of that growth is people moving in. I mean, just this place is exploding with people. Yeah, we're different than 1977. And here's the deal. In 1977, there was an expression of the local church in Desert Springs that was the right fit for the right time. And then in 1983 and 1989 and 1992 and 1997 and on and on and on. And here we are in 2022, simply asking, do we need fresh wineskins for this new wine? Right? We're not going to do things simply because it's the way it always has been. So we're praying through that right now because we think that the city's dramatically changed. I'm going to ask you a not, a not so hyperbolic question. Does this community need to see people who are on different sides of a political issue come together and engage in loving civil discourse? Does this community need that? Does this community need to show that people who fly different flags can lay down their flags and unite at a common table with one common king? Yes, our city needs that. Does this city need to see a bunch of misfits who right now, the hate entertainment enterprises, do you hear me on that? The hate enterprises that are making billions of dollars on our corporate rage is succumbing people and baiting us down into a place to where if you have a different conviction than me, you're my enemy, yeah. (laughs) And sometimes we just yell and scream this at each other. Does our community need to see the light of the kingdom of God manifest in a corporate group of people? Okay, yes, It's fresh wine, new wine for a new time, a new ministry for a new season. And so we're not trying to say that that which has come before us is at all bad. It was the right move at the right time, but there's new moves we need to make as a church. And that's scary. Following Jesus into the dark is scary. Following Jesus into a dark with a bunch of misfits is even worse. But there's so many gifts for us waiting. There's so much beauty Have you ever experienced the gift and the beauty of a reconciled relationship that seemed irreconcilable? And there are many right now who are like, there's this one relationship I have, but I just, and here's just what I would say. Christ rose from the grave and he can raise dead relationships back to life again. And a lot of times he's gonna use his local church to do that. We get to model that. And so just as your pastor, this is just my my plea for you, my invitation for you. Man, let's do this together. And let's not be so concerned about the things we do but the type of people that we are. Let us not be so concerned with our curriculum that we're teaching, but the lifestyle that we're teaching, just like Jesus did. Let's be a people committed to continually practicing the fruit of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 13 love when we approach one another, not in suspicion, but out of curiosity. Expecting that God has a gift for us there. You see it here in the text. We, okay, yeah, I'm gonna do it. Um, We can bemoan and complain about how those people are influencing our city or we can simply say our mission field is growing and we have a greater opportunity to put on display the kingdom of God in this moment. What a gift we have. And in joyous anticipation, we can say, come on in. Everyone's welcome at Jesus' table. And then we can practice the fruit of the Spirit. We can keep pointing each other to Jesus. I'm going to do an exercise right now, and I think this would not be easy. I'm not going to do anything weird, but I just would ask that you would close your eyes for a minute. And I want you to imagine the people that you do not like, like the people group. So think about your affinities. Think about your, your convictions, your, your politics, your economic status, your, your ethnic heritage. Think about people that are different than that. Maybe even in there, there's a category of persons that you just, you don't, not only do you not like them, you don't approve of them. And I want you to consider what it would be like if Jesus brought a 100 people who fit that category into our church tomorrow just as he brought Levi in to this group of fishermen. And before you jump to fear or anger, I want you just to ask this. Lord, what gifts might you have for me if that were the case, if they were to join our fellowship? What ways would you shape me You guys can open your eyes. That's hard for me to do because I've got a big list. I'm very opinionated. You guys know these things. Arrogant, rude, combative. And so I got a big list too. But the more and more I I spend time approaching people with, with curiosity instead of suspicion, recognizing that in this conversation, I'm not trying to change them, but I'm gonna recognize how the spirit might be changing me it has radically transformed my life and grown my relationships exponentially more than my default, which is combative. We'll go there together. And we'll see many good gifts. Uh, one last thing. So I'm just gonna kind of skip. I hate to do this. We're out of time. Um, unless you guys want a two-hour sermon, which I, I can do, um, Let me just get us to um, chapter three. Sorry to to jump ahead. I want to lean into this space and we're going to land the plane. Jesus entered the synagogue again and a man who was there had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, notice what the Pharisees are doing. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. What are the Pharisees, what are the religious leaders that are supposed to be shepherding the sick, including the man with the withered hand, what are they doing instead of attending to the man's needs? They're using him as bait. Is that corruption in a religious leader? Would you like for me to use your sickness as bait? Would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? Notice what he says next. To save a life or to what? Kill. Notice. Just zoom in on that. To save a life or to what? Kill. They were silent. This is a softball pitch. Is it lawful to save a life or to kill on the Sabbath? you all know what the answer is? Save a life! And you didn't even go to Pharisee school. Right? We know the answer is, yeah, Jesus, do the healing, save a life. Notice what their response is. This is the easiest question they could have answered that day. Notice what they, what they did. They wouldn't even answer Jesus. After looking around at them with, what's the word? When Jesus brings fresh wine and wineskins, a new fresh expression of the kingdom of God, who gets angry? The powerful religious elite. And when the powerful religious elite get angry and combative, who gets angry? Jesus. If that's not something for us to meditate on for the next few years, I don't know what is they're resistant to his change they're resistant to his expression of the kingdom and they're angry and he's angry right back because they've corrupted their faith he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts this is uh, I think he's riffing on the the language that's used of Pharaoh's heart in the Exodus and told the man stretch out your hand so he stretched it out and his hand was restored immediately now do you remember what Jesus question was is it lawful on the sabbath to save a life or to what kill what did Jesus do he healed the man what do the religious elite do who are, who are stuck in their traditions? What do they do? They immediately plot to do what? What is better, to heal a withered hand on the Sabbath or to plot Jesus' murder on the Sabbath? Do you, do you see the profound uh, resistance against Jesus? And I'm just going to land the plane here. The Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians. Okay, if there was a Pharisee in this room a moment ago when I said, imagine a group of people that you do not like and you do not approve of, the Pharisee would have imagined a Herodian. They did not like each other. They were on opposite sides of how to do government, politics, power, and religion. And if we had a Herodian here, when we did that little uh, imagine a group of people, they would have imagined the Pharisees. So notice this, we're we're not even halfway through the gospel of Mark. We're the early part of the third chapter in and notice, notice, notice that the Pharisees and the whom Herodians are plotting together to kill Jesus. Those guys are misfits too. The kingdom of God unites misfits around Jesus in unity, peace, and love. The kingdoms of this world unite misfits in hate, rage, and fear. Both kingdom structures that are at play unite misfits. Only one leads to flourishing. The other leads to death. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. In this word today, Lord, we know that it is very difficult for us. It's extremely difficult for me as I see you pairing together a bunch of misfits and yet we know it's for our good, and so we submit ourselves to you. Let us not be quick to offense. Let us not be quick to fear. Rather, let us be quick to listen. Let us be overflowing with compassion. Let us defer to one another, treating each other with curiosity and not suspicion, expecting good gifts to come when you work through a unified body of misfits. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. Church family, I love you. More importantly, Jesus loves you so much. Let's be a people who live in light of this truth. We'll see you guys next week.